This week, we spend the day in Hollywood with Emmy-winning Mad Men star John Hamm. There's a rhyme or reason sometimes, and then sometimes you just get blind lucky. The varsity athlete-turned-actor still manages to get his sports fix with hosting duties at the ESPYs and appearances in films like Million Dollar Arm. But his most iconic role remains the enigmatic Don Draper. How do you replicate the high of being TV's leading man? I think there's a reason that so few people have done it more than once. Ham talks about his late break into show business and the untimely death of his parents. It's a terrible way to die. And I remember being a little kid, no capacity to process it. All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start by taking you back to your St. Louis days, uh, John Burroughs School, where you attended. Um, how much was sports uh, a part of your early life there? Uh, sports has been part of my life well before I, I entered into middle school and, and high school and sort of varsity sports. It's, I was raised by a single mom, so like that was a great way to just get me out of the house and you know, have me burn off energy and do something. So I played soccer as a little kid and baseball as soon as I could. And, and then once I got to Burroughs, the, the you know, more organized uh, team sports were on the table too. And you were, and the thing in Burroughs is in seventh and eighth grade, you are required to play every sport. If you're good, bad, or indifferent at it, you just have to do it. That's what, that's what the PE portion of the, of the day was. So you'd go through, you know, we had to learn how to wrestle, you had to swim, you had to basketball, everything. Uh, and then by ninth, ninth grade, you're, you're allowed to kind of pick and choose. And it's great. And I, I was a three-sport varsity athlete. I, I did swimming, baseball, and football. Uh, it's a great way to, uh, you know, bond with your classmates. It's a great way to burn off energy. And it's just a great way to kind of it's a, it's a, it, was, it was a wildly important part of my kind of mental health, I think. So how quickly did you realize kind of your sports? I took to football and baseball right away. Uh, and I was always a pretty good swimmer. I just had never been on a swim team before. Uh, I originally started playing basketball, I think, in ninth grade. And I realized like that wasn't my jam. <laughs> I was a decent rebounder, but not quite much else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we started a, a, a swim team. I was on the inaugural men's varsity swim team, I think in 10th grade. We were called the Lemmings. Uh, How was it? it was, we were fine. You know, we had a couple good guys. I was always a middling swimmer, but uh, it was, again, it was fun. How close were you to being a Division I football player? Not, not close at all. Oh, come uh, on. I, I mean, there was... Uh, no. I mean, all, but I, I, I was, thought all you had to do was I've basically always kind say of yes. Been, and, no, no, okay. no, 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 no. I don't, the, the, you're, you're wildly misinformed. Okay. Uh, Division one now, especially, but even back then in the 80s when I graduated, I was this size. I was 6'1", 6'2", 195, 200 pounds. I would have had to put on 40 pounds of muscle to, to crack that code. Um, and I hadn't, and I, that, that, the kind of uh, business approach or the corporatization of, of sport, I didn't, I wasn't interested in it. I didn't want to be a professional athlete. Uh, the, de- the dedication is too much. It, it's not, it, didn't, it didn't seem fun. It seemed like work. And it was always fun for me right. to, to play sports. It was always a pastime instead of a, a vocation. Um, you were recruited by schools. Though, I was right? recruited by small schools. Uh, In some Ivy League? Uh, Cornell, I think I got, a, I got a recruitment. But they weren't allowed to give scholarships. And I couldn't afford to pay 
private tuition. It was just not an option uh, to to do that. It was just too expensive. I couldn't I couldn't afford it. <laughs> did, did you consider playing small school? Again, not no. really. Okay. I, it would have it would have taken too much of my time. I wanted I wanted college to be a, a time where I kind of figured out what I want to do with my life, and mm -hmm. I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a professional athlete. And I I, I don't even know H had I gone down that road if I would have had the the skills to pay the bills, so to speak. So Paul Rudd says you're the most competitive person he's ever met. <laughs> um, in what ways are you competitive? I I do compete, and I play to win, and I love love to win. I don't like losing. I've gotten a lot more mellow in my in my old age, uh, to the point where I can I can I can let it go. But uh, what used to happen? Oh, I'd get furious, like especially like when I was a kid. Just like it was just rage stroke out, you know, like lose my mind if I lost anything. But that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, how how but would I, but people I'd, react? When well, like you react when you see a, a kid losing his shit. You're like, what's wrong with you? Right. Calm down. Uh, but I was never like a trash talker. I never never did that stuff. I just I just really liked playing my hardest and inspiring other people to play hard too. Uh, it's the only, it was really the only way I knew how to do that. Um, so everybody I spoke to uh, close to you said, you were always popular, good looking, exceptionally smart, uh, center of attention for as long as they can remember. Um, Thanks. Care to respond? <laughs> I don't know, yeah, I, I've, I've always been, my mom taught me, I've only had my mom in my life for, for 10 years, but she taught me to be, to be proud of being exceptional, uh, you know, kind of the don't hide your light under a bushel kind of a situation. And to, to try hard and to succeed and, to, and to, be, to be a good person, but also to be, a, a, be engaged. Uh, that's, you know, I was always in like after school programs and I was always in sports and I was always in stuff because it was like, you, you, you only get one shot at this. Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of everything you can? She was like, all right, this is there's a big world out there. And it seems a shame to not take advantage of it. So I read everything I could get my hands on. And I had a, a very healthy respect for uh, school. I paid attention in class. Mostly because I liked it. I found it interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I just remember thinking, like, this is why we're here. Right. <laughs> we're not here to, like, f around and mess around. And, and, and also, like, not for nothing, I was paying a lot of money, or my, somebody was paying a lot of money. Right. Like that was told to me very early, like, don't waste this. Don't. But at that age, it's hard to be aware of that and have I, an I, appreciation. You know, I was made aware of it. it. Yeah. I was very much made aware of it by people in my life. And I think, you know, losing a parent at that age kind of crystallizes a lot of things. Uh, when, you know, the idea of the, the impermanence of things is, is you're made aware of very, probably too early, but very early on. Your high school drama teacher, uh, Wayne Solomon, you know, I wondered how uh, he took a look at you, the star athlete, and he decided he was interested in you for acting. He's done that time and time again, and I think that's, again, part of the philosophy of the school, is like you're not meant to stay in one lane. You're meant to be... Uh, you must try it, try it all. And, you know, and it, see if you like it. And, and if, if, you, if you don't, okay, you don't have to do it again. Just do it once.
but if you do, hey, look at there, you found something out about yourself. So it's post-college. Uh, what made you decide to call the headmaster of John Burroughs School and propose an internship? Well, I needed a job. I had been waiting tables in, in St. Louis for about a year, and that was fine. But um, I just, I, there was something about the profound impact that the school had on me that I wanted to, to turn that around and do something for another generation of kids. And I wanted to, and I, and I wanted to give something back. And so I had a great year. I taught a lot of wonderful kids. I learned a lot. Uh, I read a lot. I, I still studied a lot. And, you know, I was able to hang out with, with the guy who I consider, you know, my mentor in many ways and a close personal friend for a solid year. So you just finished teaching a year of eighth grade drama at the John Burroughs School. Uh, you make the decision with, I think, like 150 bucks to your name to leave St. Louis drive your 86 Toyota Corolla cross-country to L.A. Um, at that point, um, what are you hoping for how it'll work out? I remember being, I remember being a, a little, like, pretty terrified, but also excited. I was 25 years old. I mean, you're still kind of bulletproof then. Uh, by this point, I'd, I'd lost my dad when I was 20. And, and so I was kind of like, well, it's kind of a clean slate. Like, why not go to LA? Why not go west, young man, see what's out there? I had an aunt, I had family, and I had several friends. And I thought, okay, I, I, I bet this is manageable, at the very least. I knew I could wait tables anywhere in the world. I'm a good enough bartender and waiter, and speak a little Spanish, like, I'm fine. So I, I knew I could, I could land on my feet and, and figure it out. Around this time, you had, I think, a variety of jobs, one of which, as you've spoken about before, uh, you worked briefly on a softcore porn yeah, set. Yeah, that was, uh, that was my, uh, my friend, Cappy Kilburn, who was our college stage manager. Right. I had a group of friends that lived out here that were from college. And we were all sitting around commiserating one night, just like, you know, none of us had jobs, and we were just like, what are we, we're eating, you know, a big bowl of pasta that we all chipped in to make or whatever. And, and uh, I was probably 26, been out here a year. I was like, I need a job, man. I, 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 catering isn't working out. I'm like, no. Nah. She goes, you can have my job. I, I'm sick of it. I can't, I can't deal with it anymore. I was like, what's your job? She's like, set dressing. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know how to do that. Like, isn't that a thing that you need a skill set? And somebody, she goes, no, <laughs> you don't. And certainly not for this. I was like, oh, I'm not in the union. Like, is this? She goes, no, 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 no. And she's got like a bucket of tools. She goes, here, take this. Show up at seven o'clock in the morning. It's this warehouse in downtown LA. And I was like, this, that's, this is the shadiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it was. And I worked there for like a month. Why was it weeks. depressing? Why do you think? You're just looking at like the most sort of sad people in the world that are doing this. It, it was just, it was just a bummer. Like you know, it's just like. It was, it, was, it, was, it was not the side of the industry that inspires. How did not getting an acting job for three years impact your confidence? You have to have a pretty thick skin to, to do anything in this business. And you have to kind of understand that, that, there's some, that there's a rhyme or reason sometimes, sometimes. And then sometimes you just get blind lucky. Uh, and I had had, you know, I, had, I'd never got, I, had, I wasn't working, but I was auditioning. 
like a million auditions and I kept getting called back. Like the idea of somebody saying like, oh, I like you, might not be for this thing, but you know, there's, there's gonna be another thing. And so I had that kind of feedback from casting directors and producers and directors and, and people like that. And I was like, okay. And I auditioned for like a lot of cool stuff. Like uh, Steven Spielberg. Like, uh, well, you know. What do you remember from meeting with him? Well, I, I didn't meet him. Okay. I met his, the woman who directed the film that he was producing, which is called Deep Impact. And I didn't get the job. John Favreau did. But, you know, you, you, you have to find the, the, the positive to pull away from from whatever rejection you, you have, or you're, or you're just gonna spiral. But I was able to kind of, for, for whatever reason, able to kind of understand that there was, there was positives to be taken from it. Explain how signing a contract right before the final audition ended up messing with your head. Oh, it's, well, it's, testing for a pilot, especially for a network pilot, is, is, a, is such a mind f because they just, you're, you're in a, a, a space, this size, with all the other people that they're considering hiring other than you. And it's kind of like a feeding friend is go, and you have to go in and do your thing, and they, they, they make you sign your contract before you go in because they basically, when they're making the decision on who to hire, they're going, this guy costs this, this guy costs this, this guy costs this. And that way they maintain all the leverage. You can't say like, oh, they want me, so guess what, I'm gonna charge double the rate. So it's all buttoned up before you go in there, and you think, if I get this job, I'm gonna make more money than I've ever seen in my life. All, all my bills are gonna be paid. I'm gonna be able to pay my back rent. I'm gonna be able to go Christmas shopping. I'm gonna be able to, you know, which is the last thing you wanna be thinking about before you go in and try to make people believe that you're an alien doctor or something. You know what I mean? So, But it would creep into your head. Oh, of course. It's, it, I, I, everybody will tell you, everybody will tell you that, that auditioning is, is it's the worst. Steve, I remember reading Steve Martin's book, and he was like, the day I, I was able to stop auditioning was like the greatest day of my life as a performer because it's just, it's, it's so unnatural and, and awful, and yet it's the only thing we got. So there's a great quote from a story on you describing the Mad Men character that you played, and it was, uh, quote, Don Draper, the illegitimate child of Depression-era losers who, through preternatural ambition, intuition, and a freakish twist of fate, reinvents himself as a prince of Madison Avenue. Um, what appealed to you about the role? That's a pretty great description of a pretty great role. Uh, I hadn't seen that before. And I certainly had never read a script like that before. And. I don't know, there was just a lot about it that, to play. You've got this guy who's on, on the surface, this wildly confident alpha, you know, kind of prototype. But behind the scenes, it's, it's, it's all of, you know, it's all a sham. Um, and Matthew wrote an amazing pilot script and he created a world, an amazing world uh, for 92 episodes. In the TV landscape in the, in the early 2000s, obviously we're in a completely different time now with streaming and this and that and every, every iteration of, of, of uh, television drama is being kind of exploded and reconstituted. But back then it was like there were cop shows, there were doctor shows, and there were lawyer shows. And Sopranos kind of changed it, mm -hmm. and then Mad Men changed it, and then Breaking Bad changed it. You know, The Wire changed it. Um, but, you know, it's, it, 
that's what you had to deal with or soap operas. Matthew Weiner, the Mad Men creator, was previously a writer on The Sopranos. Uh, the HBO passed on the show AMC, ends up getting it. I think he knew from your first audition that you were who he wanted, but you weren't the big name established actor at the time, so you had to audition time after time after time before finally getting it. Um, after you get the part, you and uh, Weiner go for a walk afterwards. What does he tell you about the role? Well, he told me basically, he goes, do you want to hear the backstory? And I was like, Sure. And he goes into this whole thing about how he's son of a prostitute and this and that, and never knew his dad, and his stepdad was awful. And I, mean, I was like, wow, like, did you write all this down or are you just like free associating? Like, what's going on? And it was, uh, you know, we got to, we got to kind of see that uh, writ large as the, as the series progressed. The first time you were in costume, in your dressing room, you're looking in the mirror, reciting your lines, what do you see? I remember going to set that day. We shot the pilot at Silver Cup Studios in Brooklyn, uh, New York. And I remember, you know, you get to set at 5.30 in the morning or whatever. Weirdly, there was a dead body in the <laughs> parking lot. <laughs> Someone had fallen out of a car off the bridge that went right over the thing and then splatted in the parking lot. So there was a, one of those little weird cop tricycles and a sheet. And we were all like, what's going on in the parking lot? <laughs> like somebody died. But I remember thinking like, you know, putting all the, putting all the gear on and getting, going through hair and makeup and whatever. And then thinking to myself, well, okay, like you got the job, now you just have to do it. This is what you wanted, so go do it now. And the first thing we shot was a three and a half page scene with me and John Slattery and we're yammering at each other and I have to go in take off my shirt get another shirt out, put two Alka-Seltzer in a thing, blah, 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 to untie my tie, retie my tie, and miss a button, because the end of the scene is you missed a button. Uh, and we do this thing, first time I do it, nail it. So yeah, it was like, you got it, now go do it. Others close to you have said like, you know, the role caused you to kind of like dig up the soil of family stuff. Uh, others said the like d deepness of the character weighed heavily on you it's not it's not it's not fun to play kind of a, a sad person day in and day out for nine years I mean it's fun but it's not you know it's not like doing a light comedy uh, but it's yeah I mean it's it's hard it's, it's hard to be a lead on a television show full stop like the hours are terrible you know you don't have much of a life yeah, especially for me playing Don Draper you're in every scene you don't have a day off I didn't have a day off for like three weeks at one point because I was doing reshoots on the town and I was shooting bridesmaids also and so I had like there was a 20 I worked 21 days in a row and you know you're going to bed at two in the morning you're waking up at six you're going to bed at you know midnight you're waking up at five you get tired it, it's exhausting but you know the the energizing part of it is 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 when you're on stage and they call action you mentioned your parents earlier what were their ambitions for you I think obviously like any parent they want their kid to be happy uh, I think like any parent, they want their kid to be safe and successful and whatnot. And there was a reason my mom signed me up for all those after-school classes, and there was a reason that she made sure I had a book in my hands at all times and made sure I did my homework and made sure that I achieved. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she was the one that saved the money uh, for you to go well, to Well, yeah, I mean, it was her school. kind of nest egg mm -hmm. uh, that when she passed away that was sort of 
bequeathed to me. How much do you think like that money and allowing you to go there impacted your life? Immensely. Education is it's it's the most important thing uh, in a kid's life, and I got you know the Cadillac version of that. Uh, she had her colon removed to feed of I think cancerous intestine. Um, ends up passing away in her 30s. You were uh, 10 at the time, and I believe you less remember the death and more remember the impact it had on your family. Um, in what ways? I mean, losing a parent at a young age is is. I think the only the only worst thing to do is has, is lose a child, which I I was watching my my grandfather and grandmother lose their child, their oldest child. Uh, you know, she's 35 years old. It's too soon. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a terrible way to die. Uh, it just is. And I remember being a little kid, no capacity to process it. It's it's a it's a crater, and your life just explodes, and you you have to kind of manage it, but you don't know what it's like to mourn or grieve or go through the, you know, the famous sort of processes because you're a kid. You think everything lives forever. So, so you're at University of Texas in um, Austin. Your grandma passes away while you're there. Short time after, uh, your dad ends up passing away. And you said that um, that kind of changed everything and there was this profound sense of being alone. I mean, I had friends and I had you know, sisters, and I had aunts and uncles, but I didn't have a mom and dad. Uh, and I, I give thanks, you know, to the people in my life who, who helped me reorient during that time, which were these really close family friends, um, the Simmonses, the Clarks, and the Wilsons. And they each individually met with me and sort of sat me down and said, like, look, you're going through a hard time. It's okay. You know, well, you, you're, you're going to be okay. You just got to kind of get back on your feet and we'll get you going again. And, and it was profoundly helpful. And um, uh, that's the time at which I, I was, got, into, got into therapy for the first time. My sister was like, you need to see somebody. And what did, what did she say that got you to finally go? Well, she's like, you're, you're, you know, you're sleeping till four o'clock in the afternoon. Like something's not right. You need to see somebody. You're, you're not well. And, you know, for me, it was like, oh, I'll be fine. You know, it's like, er, stiff upper lip, kind of Midwestern, like, don't worry about it, I'm fine. He's not fine. This is not fine. Your friend said even um, when they knew you were struggling, you always had the brave face. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, I think that's what we're kind of taught as, as whatever, as polite Midwesterners. It's like, don't worry about it. It's not, don't want to overshare, fine. But, you know, seeing, seeing the... The therapist at that time was profoundly helpful because it is it does what it does it gives you another perspective on something that you can't quite figure out and she was able to really kind of uh, again reorient my my kind of way of thinking and she put me on a medication that was that changed my brain chemistry enough to where okay I'm I'm feeling a little better I can I, I can get up and go to work I can get up and go to school I can do my work on time I can I can, uh, I can self-motivate again. I mean, sometimes that's what you need. And it's like, it's, it's got the most interesting stigma, but you know, people think if you break your ankle, uh, you're not expected to just walk it off. Right. But if your brain chemistry is somehow a little, a little tweaked, you're somehow expected to just deal with it. It's like, well, 
but there's a medicine that fixes it. And to go back to what you said about the three families that were so helpful, you made the point that it wasn't the therapy as much as the people in your life that didn't have to be kind, but were. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big reason why I, I take meetings with kids that come out here and say, t try to tell them, give them a what's up with moving to LA. It's a big reason why I wanted to go back and teach. It's a big reason why I try to lead with kindness. Because I'm a, I'm a perfect example of what happens when you, when you do that to somebody that you don't need, need to. Uh, Mad Men ending and film career. First, you, you said Mad Men ending was like mourning and you go through all the stages of grief. Um, how did that come out in you? You know, you're losing something that you spent, in my case, nine, the better part of a decade with. Right. So you're, you're, you're going from kind of one reality to a completely different one. Um, and it was, it's hard, you know, it's, 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 you know, I think probably still the, the one thing that I'm really known for. I've got other things that I'm very proud of in my career, but it's that there's, there's, there's one that's pretty outsized. Um, and it's a challenge, you know, it's, you, 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 you have to kind of, like I said, reorient your existence to, to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my days? <laughs> like it used to be from March to August, I, I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then it, attendant with that comes, you know, do people think I'm any good in anything else? Do people want to see me doing anything else? Do, am I, you know, am I a one-trick pony? All this other stuff comes into play. And that's what you're thinking Well, you're time. just, because you're, you're unemployed for the first time in nine years. It's, it sucks. It sucks being unemployed. And really, you even felt that then, even though, I mean, you're deservedly almost unemployed, just you know, killed it at the show for it's, it's, however many that seasons. That kind of thing never like, goes away. It's, yeah. and it, but, it, but when you're, I guess, old enough or, or mature enough, you can, you can understand that that's a thought that you have and then understand that that's ridiculous and you'll be fine. How do you replicate the high of being TV's leading man? You don't. Uh, I don't, I think there's a reason that so few people have done it more than once. Uh, but, it, but it's also like it's an important lesson to, like, to let that be its thing. Let that be what that was. This period of time from 2006 to 2015, that was a hell of a run. And don't chase after that again. Go have another experience. Go look for something else to do. The reason I think that Mad Men was so successful was that nobody thought it would be successful. You know, you look at what's popular on TV now, and they're kind of the outliers. The things that, the sure bets that people are, oh, this is going to be amazing. Mm. People are like, seen it. Seen that guy do that before. So I, got, I get a chance to, to work on things now that are exciting and, and fun and funny, and I get to work with the people who I've, who I've established relationships over the you know, the last 15 years of my career. And what was that process like for you of figuring out uh, what to do professionally post? I don't, you know, I don't now. really know. I, I, I certainly didn't have any kind of like overarching strategy or... or but really? Like, not, no. I, again, it's not really how I've... Was that intentional? Yeah. I, but it's also, it's again, it's just the only way I really know how to do stuff. 
I'm not a big master planner. That's not how my brain works, really. I'm more of just like, a, okay, well, let's see where this goes. Let's see where this trail leads. Um, and again, I think, especially in this, it's like holding on to sand. You know, the tighter you, the tighter you grip it, the, the less you have. Um, and, and I've been fortunate enough to where the, a lot of the people that I've worked with have really wanted to work with me again. And that's really nice. Um, so I've just been taking it as it comes. So I know you said before you aren't interested in superhero movies, but um, what's this I hear that there are at least rumors that you're interested in Batman? I've had rumors about that since probably since season one of Mad Men. I, I, I've, never, I've never had a conversation with anybody about it, literally. And I've sat in the rooms with all, all these guys. Never been offered anything. I think the internet wants what it wants. I can't would, control the would internet. Would you like it? Depends. Uh, on what? Script. What the story is. I'm a huge comic book fan. Always have been. Uh, I read comic books since I was, you know, nine or younger. Uh, and I'm pretty knowledgeable about a lot of them. And I, and I like the genre. And I like them when they're done well. Uh, I saw Black Panther. I was like, this movie's great. Um, a friend of mine uh, is a showrunner on Legion, which I just watched last night. It's great. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things out there, but it depends on the story. You know, it all comes down to the story. But could you see playing it? Uh, sure. I mean, sure. I'd probably fit the suit. You know, <laughs> I have to I have to work out a lot, which <laughs> I don't love, but uh, you know. It's sure. There's a, there's a. I'm sure there's a there's an interesting version of, of that being out there, and and if they wanted to tap me on the shoulder and ask me to do it, why why not? But I mean, you know, a lot of people have to sign off on that, obviously, and not just the internet. When it comes to film roles, what's your process involved with preparing? You know, it, everyone's different. You know, mine is mine is a little more internal, and uh, again, like I said, I just like to be really uh, present. I think that's, that's the only thing I can really do. Um, Internal in what way? To just like, think about it by myself. I don't like to talk to people about it. Uh, and, and what will you think about? The part, the role, the this, the character, the, how it works, how we're going to play the scene, what we think, you know, the logistics of, of the work. Uh, it's, and, and other people like to you know, talk about it and, and really kind of hash it out and say, oh, okay, what do you think, can I do, what do you, I, I don't mind doing that. I don't mind being the other person, I just don't prefer doing that. What's a character you played recently and w what was that kind of internal process you had of kind of working through well, how Well, I had to go do a film it? recently where we were shooting in Morocco and you're already kind of a little left of center because you're, you're in a foreign country and they're speaking three languages on set and you, not really sure how, who to ask and how to ask and what the, what the, what the custom is or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, again, by that point, it's, the director and I had had tons of conversations and, and everybody was on the same page, but you, you just gotta, you just gotta be prepared. Prepared to like face what the day is going to be. And that, that means you gotta be, you know, 
got to know your lines and you got to, I had to speak Arabic in that movie, which is not easy. Uh, you're just constantly, constantly going over it and going over it and going over it. And, and, and then trying to make it disappear, you know, trying to make it seem as natural as possible. It's like learning to dribble with your left hand. You know, you don't, you don't get good at it by thinking about doing it. Do it. Some, some actors are, are born with a preternatural ability to just walk right into something and be awesome. I, I, I think most actors, take, it takes time to get, to get good. What makes you realize when you're playing a role well? Uh, I, it's a good question. Um, I feel like there's, there's something that just settles where you just, again, like it, it just feels like it's not happening. It feels like it's, you're not acting. You're just, you're just there and, and you're, you're just hyper-present and it's fun. It becomes fun. So the first time you're offered to host Saturday Night Live, what was it like turning it down? Yeah, I couldn't do it. We had, I, I had planned a, a trip that I couldn't unplan. How do you handle that one? I said to my agent at the time, I was like, you have to be very delicate with this and say that it's, I'm not turning it down because I don't want to do it. I wildly want to do it, but I can't. I just, I don't know how you make that argument, but please do. And effectively, they did. And, and it was nice because obviously Mad Men was very cyclical and there was another opportunity. But I've, I've, I got to host it three times in two years. I mean, that's, and it's so fun. Oh, it's so fun. I was just there uh, a little bit ago. I saw my friend Bill Hader host. It was, it was nice. It was really nice. That first experience, though, hosting, uh, describe what you remember. It's a roller coaster. I, what I realized was it's a roller coaster. And it's a roller coaster that's pretty well designed. It's not going to fly off the tracks unless you do something ridiculous to make it fly off the tracks. And so your job is to hang on, hold on, and enjoy the ride. And it's thrilling. Your stomach drops out, and you go upside down, and you go around the corner, and your hair falls. And so it's crazy fun. But I realized that literally like five seconds before they pushed me through the door, I was like, oh, right, this is a roller coaster. Just ride the roller coaster, man, and enjoy it. Cue cards are right there. They push you and pull you and stick you on your mark. You're not. The rest of it is just, just enjoy it. How many Saturday Night Live sketches can you recite verbatim? Probably not as many as I used to, but I, I do have a pretty good working knowledge of, of the history of that show. Uh, and there's a really cool thing that you can do when you're there. You, they have like a database, basically, and kind of in-house network and computer that you can pull up any sketch from anything from the past 40 years, basically. They have it all digitized wow. somehow. And I think it's mostly so they can make sure they're not cannibalizing their own mm -hmm. things. They're like, we, don't, we did that in 1984. Like, um, but also it's like to see, you know, I think, how to do things, who did what. Would it be fun to kind of revisit, you know, things like that. It's pretty cool. What do you think Lorne Michaels likes about you? Well, Lauren is famously kind of inscrutable. Um, so I don't know. 
But you guys I, are friends. I wouldn't hazard a guess. Uh, yes, I think we're friendly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. I do hear from him. You know, if he's visiting in town, hey, you want to have dinner? Um, and that's always a nice message to get. And it's always a fun dinner. You're sitting with a person who's a legend in his own time. I mean, who doesn't want to sit at that table? And I've been fortunate enough to, to have dinner with Lorne, Mike Nichols, Marty Short, like people like that. And the idea of, I just love listening, you know, listening to them. And, and I mean, the, are you kidding me? Like, that's, that's the best. Thank you very much. Cheers, bud. Thanks for listening to my conversation with John Hamm. After the interview, John and I went head-to-head in the batting cages, which you can see at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. 